Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we're going to talk about a lawsuit, but thankfully not a lawsuit having anything to do with GameStop, Robinhood, Epic, or Apple. Well, maybe a little something to do with Epic versus Apple. No, today we're going to talk about a lawsuit that was filed late last week against the Valve Corporation and their video game platform, Steam. This was caught by The Hollywood Reporter in an article entitled popular gaming platform accused of abusing market power through contracts. Valve's deals with game developers for distribution on Steam are put under the legal microscope. Now, we're going to talk about this like we do in this space, virtual legality. We're going to talk about the bulk of this lawsuit. But there is a lot here that really goes into economic theorizing uh, that we're not going to dive too much into. We are going to comment on the fact that this is how an antitrust suit generally looks. Uh, It doesn't kind of raise the red flags that there's a problem here. There's a lot of well-considered commentary. There are, however, also muddled components of this lawsuit. So in some ways, it's a bit stronger than what we were evaluating when we looked at something like Epic versus Apple. In other ways, it's not as strong uh, because they can't point to the contract language that they want to use for their baseline thesis. And there are some other issues with things like dragging in developers. So let's take a look at this lawsuit in its entirety. First, we've got the plaintiffs, which are individuals. There's three individuals, I believe, that signed the contract that are subscribers to Steam themselves. And then they also brought in three parents that bought things for their minors uh, and have said that they aren't signatories to the contract itself. There's some vagaries there because technically Valve says you can't sign up unless you're at least 13 years old. And that's neither here nor there. Basically, there are a bunch of plaintiffs they brought And they are bringing a complaint, seeking a class action certification for basically everybody that's a Steam uh, consumer against Valve. Sure, that makes sense from a Steam perspective. But if you look at the rest of these defendants, it's also against CD Projekt, Ubisoft, KChamp Games, Rust LLC, and Devolver Digital Incorporated. Now, we'll take a look at why they were brought into the lawsuit. One of the things that I think is a mistake here is that bringing in the developers really muddies the waters for what you want to claim is something that harms developers. Uh, Because the developers signed up to this agreement, the implication is that this is some kind of restraint of trade designed to create a kind of cartel. There are a number of ways that you can bring what we're going to talk about, which is a most favored nation type claim. One of them is that you're creating a cartel of people that are going to abuse the market dominance of one or more of them, or certainly all of them acting together. The other way, which is the one that is clearly the most articulated in this lawsuit, is that Valve is using a most favored nation clause, and we will talk about what that is in just a second, to exclude potential competitors. And that is by far the easier thesis to make. So I am not sure why, when they were strategizing out what they were going to bring here as a lawsuit, they decided to bring in this kind of cartel behavior concept, because I really do think it weakens the overall thrust of their case, which should be that Valve is excluding potential competitors like Epic Games, which we, of course, said we would reference as part of this video. The baseline claim is the following. Valve abuses the Steam platform's market power by requiring game developers to enter into a most favored nations provision contained in the Steam distribution agreement, whereby the game developers agree that the price of a PC game on the Steam platform will be the same price the game developers sell their PC games on other platforms. Now, this will come up throughout the lawsuit, but the major issue that I see here is that they don't quote a most favored nations clause. 
They say that the Steam distribution agreement is confidential. It does mean that they didn't have anybody that would show it to them. That doesn't immediately defeat a case like this. Certainly, if you can get a sympathetic judge's ears, you could get into discovery, you could get a copy of this agreement, and you could actually point to the provision that you think does this. The problem is, without that, it's basically a kind of economics white paper about what a most favored nation clause is, how Steam might be using it, and what effect it would have on the marketplace. We also will have other kind of documentation about Steam keys and things that muddy the waters even more and suggest that Steam really isn't controlling pricing that much, even when some folks, like these folks, certainly the plaintiffs and some other developers themselves, have said that Steam has some kind of control over these kinds of things. So that's that's the baseline biggest hole in what we're going to see here is that they're going to talk about this Most Favored Nations Clause or an MFN clause, and they can't actually point to one. They can't point to contractual language that does this. They just assert it. Again, it doesn't kill it dead because if that exists in this agreement that they can't otherwise use as evidence right now, they can still you know amend their complaint with the specifics. But right now, it looks like, well, okay, you say Steam has this, but I can point to things that suggest that maybe they don't have this, at least not as strongly as you're asserting right here. So where does that leave us? Continuing. Because of this most favored nations provision, or MFN, other platforms are unable to compete on price, thereby insulating the Steam platform from competition. The MFN has the effect of keeping prices to consumers high, as price competition by platforms would cause the prices of PC games sold to consumers to decrease. The MFN also hinders innovation and suppresses output as it acts as an artificial barrier to entry by potential rival platforms, things that would compete with Steam itself, and as higher prices lead to less sales of PC games, probably fewer sales, but that's neither here nor there. Note that they're making certain assertions, and this isn't necessarily wrong in an antitrust context, but note the yellow line here, the middle line of this paragraph. The MFN has the effect of keeping prices to consumers high, as price competition by platforms would cause the prices of PC games sold to consumers to decrease. Now, the price competition by platforms, as we know it, is the commission rate, right? Steam charges 30%. Epic famously charges 12% with certain modifiers for whether or not you're using their Unreal Engine. And one of the things that we talked about in virtual legality when that announcement was made was that we might see developers decide to come out and cut the price of games to attract people over to the Epic platform because it made no never mind to them. They would still be making as much or more on Epic at a 12% cut than they would be selling on Steam at 30%. What instead appears to have happened, and it might be the responsibility of a contract, it's a little bit tricky to tell, is that for the most part, things that go over to Epic are at the same prices that you would generally expect to see them on Steam and the developers themselves are keeping the extra 18%. And that's for games that don't appear to have any easy avenue to go over to Steam at all, that are either exclusives for a period of time at Epic, don't appear to have a sales strategy that's going to have them go through Steam, or they're trying to buddy up with Epic. I don't know the reasoning behind every decision made by some of these game developers or publishers. But what we are seeing is that those prices stay what we might call from an economic terminology, sticky And the reason for that is pretty easy to understand as well, right? Once consumers are kind of used to paying $60 or potentially $70, if you're getting into the PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series X generation for video games, there isn't a great deal of transparency 
between the commission and all the charges that are being charged to a developer or publisher and the end line price that goes to a consumer. So by the time you get to buying a video game, the consumer is used to paying $70 for a AAA title. They'll pay $70 regardless or perhaps regardless of what the underlying supplier fees are. And you can see that most obviously whenever Sony or Microsoft decides to sell a game at the full 60 bucks, right? Because every other publisher that publishes something on an Xbox or a PlayStation has to pay a cut to Sony or Microsoft. We know this to be true, but Microsoft and Sony sell without that cut, or more precisely, they might be moving money around on their books between their various entities. It's hard to say, depending on how people treat their own accounting, that they don't have to lose the money to pay that cut, which means that you could release your game if you are PlayStation, if you are Sony, you could release your game at 45 or 50 or maybe even less and make the same amount of money. But your bean counters, your accountants are going to look at it and say, well, we don't expect that we will make up in volume that difference in price, that there's a set number of people that are willing to buy Game X. And so if there's a set number of people that are willing to buy Game X at 70, yes, there will be more that would buy it at 50, but not enough to make up for a $20 loss for each of that first group. And we get into discussions of price elasticity and all these things, which means that at the end of the day, and we've talked about this before in virtual legality, antitrust actions like this one are all based on kind of hypothetical economic analysis and determining whether something is right or something is wrong based on what we can't know, kind of a multiverse, alternative universe theory of what would happen. Doesn't mean it shouldn't be done. Doesn't mean that there aren't antitrust actions to bring. But when you talk about things like a most favored nations clause, let's assume for purposes of this discussion that Steam 100% has a clause in its contract that says if you sell something on Steam, you won't sell it cheaper somewhere else. Does that harm the consumer? And that's a harder thing to prove. And remember, the antitrust laws are more concerned, not exclusively concerned, but more concerned with that end user scenario. Will they make any more money? Will they get any more products? Will they get higher quality platform services? Not so much the intermediaries. We're not so much concerned in the antitrust laws with making sure that competitors survive as we are with the notion that competition yields benefits at that baseline level. So that's a long way of saying When you start to see these paragraphs, yeah, their thesis might be correct. I'm not trying to say it isn't, but it has a long way to go to show it. And we'll see they spend a whole section of their document, perhaps not improperly, basically referencing economic models and articles and things that they would suggest are causing these problems in the marketplace. And it's easy enough for one of us to say, yeah, okay, if they're keeping those prices up, we would make those prices. Somebody would come in with lower prices. It's just not so easy to take that intuition and place it in reality because there are competing interests. And if the developers have a sticky 60 or $70 pricing point, they just as soon keep it sticky and more power to them. They want to make money for that product that they've delivered to the market. Continuing, they give a few definitions. An MFN is a most favored nation provision in a contract. An MFN is an agreement between platforms and sellers about the prices that sellers will charge buyers who purchase through rival platforms. Generally speaking, I see most favored nations clauses in my line of work with something like a vendor agreement where you say, okay, you're going to supply us with this good that goes into our machine. And if you supply it to someone else for less, you will supply it to us at that price, which is the other way of saying this, right? They frame it as it's locked into a high price. What Steam could say, we don't know what's in this language because it's not quoted in this lawsuit, is that, hey, if you charge someone else less, you will give us that benefit of that lower price as well. We don't want to lose 
market share to you going to some discount platform, which can, of course, look anti-competitive, and that's what's at issue in this case. The parties, as I discussed, are Sean Colvin is the first one listed. It says he regularly purchases PC games on the Steam platform. Accordingly, Mr. Colvin has been forced to pay supra-competitive prices for those PC games because of the most favored nations clause. You see that with Everett Stevens and Ryan Lally. Then you get to, I think Susan Davis is the first of these. Ms. Davis purchases PC games from defendants on the Steam platform for her minor child who has his own Steam account. Now this has a whole bunch of issues because Steam specifically, and rightfully so, says if you're under 13, you can't have an account, period. So this looks to be a kind of declaration that suggests that Maybe there's a problem here with who has agreed to the agreement itself. Now, I would also say, having reviewed this for this video, Steam doesn't actually do what I had expected it to do, which is to say, hey, if you are a parent or guardian and you take any actions on behalf of your child, you will be deemed to have agreed to the terms of this agreement. It doesn't appear to have that language, at least not obviously so. So there might be a little bit of gray area here. It doesn't really matter for the claim. They're just trying to bring in these extra plaintiffs to have the parent class, the guardians class, also brought into the class action so that they can increase those damages and legal fees and everything else. Defendant Valve operates a platform for game developers to sell PC games to consumers called Steam. And then we get into the weirdness. Defendant CD Projekt is a Polish game developer and sells PC games through the Steam platform. Upon information and belief, which is what you tell the court when you don't know for certain, CD Projekt has agreed with the Steam platform to the Steam MFN. Yeah, everybody that has developed and sold something on Steam, agreed to whatever the confidential Steam agreement is, right? So all of these, upon information or belief, that's fine because they don't have a copy of the contract in front of them, but it is worth noting that every developer on Steam would have entered into this agreement. Now, what is this use of keeping these defendants in this claim is to say that they were effectively complicit in a scheme to restrain trade, except As I said at the top of this video, the problem with this theory is that they will also try to establish that these developers are harmed by having these platforms and not having multiple places to sell and that they could make more money with lower commissions and all these things. And so it's a really weird thing to have in this lawsuit to say these guys are complicit, also they're victims. It's weird. And that's CD Projekt, it's Ubisoft. Now Ubisoft's an interesting one because Ubisoft pretty famously and loudly, we covered it in virtual legality, left Valve and Steam. They gave the Division 2 to Epic Games. This is described in Ars Technica here as Epic gets a major exclusive, Ubisoft gets a bigger cut, Valve gets rejected. And this is one of those areas where you can actually see in real life that Ubisoft, who wasn't going to sell their game on Steam, who still hasn't, you can go search Steam for Division 2, it's not there, sold Division 2 at the price you would expect on the Epic Game Store, not bound, seemingly, by any most favored nation clause uh, on Steam. Just said, hey, that's money. That's a sticky price. People expect to pay this for a AAA title. And so here we are. Now, you could also make the thesis, if you're the plaintiffs here in this case, that things used to be cheaper on the PC and that Steam's existence created this stickiness. And maybe they'll make that theory as part of an amended complaint or as just as part of the court proceedings here. It's not really made here that Steam's very existence created uh, this stickiness of price. But I do expect that Valve uh, and certainly the rest of the defendants will try to get out of this lawsuit entirely. will bring up those kinds of answers to a complaint like this one. You see KChamp and Rust and Devolver Digital. I will also point out There is no end of this list. For whatever reason, these defendants were brought in on the notion that they signed up to the Steam agreement. Every single developer and publisher signed up to that Steam agreement. 
and you could start talking about market power and who's under duress and who's not, but you're talking about thousands and thousands of entities who should be on this defendant list if this is the theory that you're going to go with. Just pulling these, and Ubisoft's a really weird pull because Ubisoft is so specifically, not anti-Steam exactly, but trying to do their own thing, whether it's through Epic or their own sales platform or what have you. It's weird to get them on trying to illegally conspire to restrain trade. Uh, in the same fashion as some of these others. I mean, Rust LLC, I, do they make anything else? I don't honestly know. Please leave a comment in the description to this video. This appears to be dragging in indie games. Developer Digital is a publisher for those kinds of indie games. It doesn't make a ton of sense to me. I would be interested in being a fly in the room to figure out what their strategy was to drag those in. I do think it muddies the waters in a way that isn't helpful for a case that could potentially be strong. Antitrust laws protect competition. So now we get a thesis about antitrust laws. There's nothing wrong with this. Although application of antitrust laws by regulatory agencies and courts depends on the facts and circumstances of each case, the antitrust laws all have the same basic objective, to protect the process of competition for the benefit of consumers, making sure there are strong incentives for businesses to operate efficiently, keep prices down, and keep quality up. Now, what is that quote from? Well, that's from the antitrust laws of the Federal Trade Commission, the website, which, if you're familiar with virtual legality, is a site we go to often. It's just relatively amusing to me to see the FTC website, which is one of those areas where we go as sourcing for these videos, be quoted right here. This is effectively a virtual legality section within this particular lawsuit talking about the antitrust laws. They talk about the Sherman Act. They talk about section one of the Sherman Act that prohibits contracts, combinations, or conspiracies that unreasonably restrain competition. Technically, it, it prohibits all of them, uh, but unreasonably restrains has been applied by the courts and is focused on concerted activity between two or more firms. In order to get to section one, that's why you need those other defendants, but it doesn't make a lot of sense. You should stick with section two, which says, section two of the Sherman Act makes it unlawful for any person to monopolize or attempt to monopolize. And we've talked about the fact that the monopoly in and of itself isn't bad. The, the, the monopoly in and of itself is allowed under American law. What is illegal is to acquire or maintain monopoly power through improper means. This case involves both agreements between firms that unreasonably restrain competition, that's your publishers, developers, and Valve, as well as single firm conduct, that's just Valve, that represents an unlawful use of market power and monopolistic conduct. Now we get into an economics lesson. And the one thing I would note here is, as I talked earlier uh, with you about, this is basically economics papers, right? We've got Cover story, developing an administratable MFN enforcement policy uh, from the antitrust ABA section. We've got antitrust enforcement against platform MFNs from the Yale Law Journal from 2018. This is one of their primary sources where they say platform MFNs can harm competition by keeping prices high and discouraging the entry of new platform rivals. Platform MFNs guarantee that other platforms cannot charge a lower final price, not because the focal platform has worked to ensure that it has the lowest cost, but rather because it has contracted for competitors' prices to be no lower. Now, what's really interesting here is that, yes, it constrains the difference in pricing. A most favored nation clause doesn't say you aren't allowed to charge a lower price. A most favored nations clause says you have to charge me the same price that you charge them. And in this particular context, it says you have to charge your consumers the same price you charge my consumers. And so there are these variations, but important ones between a most favored nation clause of the most obvious stripe uh, and what we're talking about here, where things are really convoluted, especially when you introduce the concept of steam keys, which we will get to in just a bit.
MFNs create artificial barriers to market entry. It can profitably sell at a low price by undertaking selective contracting with suppliers willing to offer a discount in exchange for more volume or other favorable terms. If those suppliers also supply the incumbent, that would be your valve. However, an MFN imposed by the incumbent would require the supplier to charge the same price to the entrant. This parity undermines the entrant's business model by preventing it from making an attractive offer to customers. But you can get into all sorts of fights about these things, right? So this is an economics standpoint that says, okay, well, MFNs are bad because they're exclusionary and MFNs don't have any pro-competitive justifications. The problem is, and as you could probably tell from the notion that I referenced that they are contained in a number of the agreements that I am reviewing, is that they haven't been generally held to be per se illegal. They're not illegal on their face. They aren't unreasonable restraints of trade in each and every instance, which drives you, if you're looking at something like this under the antitrust laws, into using some version and it depends when we talk about technology, of what we call the rule of reason, which is this concept that the court will look at the thing and determine whether it was unreasonable to do this particular monopolistic act or restraint of trade. And so you get into this kind of gray area where I've pulled up a PowerPoint presentation from the Federal Trade Commission of September 2012 when they were looking at most favored nations clauses. And it's a legal analysis that says, okay, well, sometimes they're anti-competitive and they've got some references. Sometimes people think they're pro-competitive, reduced costs, and they do note that in since the late 80s and mid-90s, they really haven't been looked at from that perspective very often because they're most often coming up in healthcare initiatives where you've got problems with price controls and things like that. They do point out, though, that the last time we talked about potentially pro-competitive effects from a Most Favored Nations Clause, the court the, gave a quote that said something along the lines of, the record supports Blue Cross's view that the Most Favored Nation policy was a bona fide policy to ensure that Blue Cross would not pay more than any competitor paid for the same services. Now that talks about what we are talking about when we talk about most favored nation statuses with with respect to suppliers and things that are the most commonly looked at uh, by a court uh, of this type. But the same kind of notion could occur with something like Steam that says, look, here's the deal. We give access to this platform. We pay for all this stuff, this quality for our consumers that maybe these other platforms don't have. We don't want you to take advantage of us and the scope and the advertising that's on Steam by effectively going and selling a discount version on the back alley of the internet somewhere. Steam could justify it that way, that the competitive effects, that consumers are getting benefits by the fact that Steam exists and does these things, and it might not be a winner. In fact, I could probably see some of you rolling your eyes when you hear that kind of argument in the back of the room listening to this virtual legality episode, but it also might not be a loser. So you can't just go out with an economics paper that says MFNs are bad, period, because of this, because the court's historically have not held them to be illegal on their face. You always have to analyze whether there's some kind of business justification for why it would exist. And it's not difficult for Steam to say, well, look, this is the what we give to you. you. We get access to our audience. We have the cards. We have the network support. We do all this stuff. All we ask is that if you lower your price somewhere else, you lower your price here, which by the way, lowers our cut. So all of these economic papers about supplier prices and increasing our profitability doesn't make a whole ton of sense in this context because we're talking about lowering the revenue for us in order to make sure that you don't benefit someone else while simultaneously taking advantage of our position. 
And yeah, I think Steam can make that argument. Doesn't mean it's an it's a guaranteed winner because they bring up a lot of good points about if this most favored nation clause exists, you are potentially driving out other competitors that just want to fight you on price, right? Because of the vast number of game developers selling on the Steam platform and subject to the Steam MFN, discount platforms are unable to compete. Economic modeling, which is a bit of a red flag term uh, when you look at a lawsuit like this, there's nothing wrong with economic modeling, but like any modeling, if you followed the news at all for the last year and a half, you know that any modeling can be wrong. Models are created by humans. Human beings make mistakes. Human beings make wrong assumptions. And so when you get economic modeling demonstrates that when a dominant platform requires its sellers to agree to an MFN, there are higher platform fees, higher retail prices, and firms with lower cost models are discouraged from entry. Some of that's intuitive. Some of that seems intuitive, but might not reflect reality. And you have to dig deep if you're a court and are trying to determine whether this contract term should be made illegal. In particular, higher platform fees is an interesting one because as we'll see as part of this lawsuit, one of the things that they make clear is that the Epic Game Store exists, that Microsoft charges less, that Steam's 30% is specific to Steam, but with all those other platforms charging lower fees, it wouldn't seem like if there is an MFN clause in the Steam agreement that it's actually having effect A. If it doesn't have effect A, you got to question effect B. And effect C seems obvious, but you still have to prove it in court. Additionally, MFNs tend to raise industry prices because they kill a retailer's incentives to compete in the terms of trade that it offers suppliers. Again, intuitively makes sense. You can't actually uh, have to create a better platform. You don't have to do that if you're Steam, if you can lock everybody out of price competition, presumably. The alternative to that, of course, is that if you can't compete on price, if that's always going to be equal, you're only actually competing on things like quality of your platform. The industry price is getting raised. That's an open question as well, because that 30% is mirrored in a number of places, but it's not mirrored in other places. Indeed, real world examples show that when platform MFNs are banned, prices to consumers fall. That's a useful piece of evidence, but it doesn't get you all the way across the finish line with this one. As discussed herein, the Steam MFN raises prices to consumers, prevents rival platforms from competing on price, discourages new entry by a low commission charging platform, which it doesn't appear to have done, and suppresses output by game developers. Now, that's an interesting one. The relevant product and geographic markets. They want the market to be the sale of PC games to consumers or the sale of PC games by game developers through platforms to consumers. And that's probably a relevant market. As we've talked about in prior videos in virtual legality, the market definition is one of the most important things when you're talking about monopolization in antitrust, that Sherman section two, because if you don't have that market control, you don't have that market power. It's very difficult to make a case that you are using the power that you don't hold illegally. Now, one of the things you'll note is that they have to say the following, PC games, console games, and mobile games are not substitutes for each other because they don't operate on each other's systems. That's a tough claim to make. If you go out into the marketplace, you say, well, I could play this game on the PlayStation over here, but it would cost $60 and I could play it potentially for less, presumably at the same price on Steam and whatever platforms on PC, I might just take that $10 and I might just play it on PC. Or if there's just something I prefer to play on my couch rather than the PC, like for me, it's first-person shooters. I don't like to play first-person shooters on my PC. I know people come into my comments and tell me that mouse and keyboard is the way, but I just like to play those games on my couch. I will say then it's most definitely a substitute 
for the PC. Similarly, strategy games like Stellaris are released on the Xbox, but they're also released on the PC. I prefer the control scheme over here. I played on my PC. So when you've got substitutes for these game markets, you have a little bit more trouble establishing a monopoly power because yes, sale of PC games is one thing. Sale of video games is another. So Valve can come out and say, well, look, we sell this portion of video games, but the PC market is a subset of the larger video game market. People bounce between them. And so we can't use that power to really control things. Also, if we are using our power to create super competitive effects, why is Sony 30%? Why is Microsoft 30%? Why is Best Buy and GameStop and everybody else 30%? We aren't using that monopoly power in any untowards fashion. Approximately 75% of all PC games sold in the United States are sold through the Steam platform. Direct sales by game developers and other channels make up the additional 25% share. This is another interesting part of this question with respect to PC game platforms is that Steam is the best way. It's the biggest way to get a video game on PC out there. It is not the only way at all. In fact, this is part of what that Epic versus Apple suit is about, is that Apple runs a closed system. Epic wants to be able to put up a store next to them on their phones. Apple doesn't want that. But Epic says, hey, PC works out just fine because Epic has a store right next to Steam and can compete with it on that level. So Steam doesn't lock out the PC marketplace. It does have the highest percentage, 75% of all PC games sold, although you'll note that isn't actually cited anywhere. You get citations for some of the other facts that they bring, and they don't actually say this is by information and belief. So we're left wondering exactly where this 75% number comes from, from the plaintiffs. But presuming that it is true, you still have the possibility for direct sales by game developers and other channels. As discussed below, Valve has market monopoly power in the relevant market because it has high market share. Undoubtedly, it does. It has the power to keep prices anti-competitively high, and it has the power to exclude rivals. Now, I would tend to say that give or take, that's accurate. That Valve probably reads, and this is going to go through a court process. So this is just speculation and how I see things as they stand today. But based on this kind of complaint pattern of 75% that in all likelihood, Valve and Steam would be held to have monopoly power in the PC game space, which is probably the relevant market. It would really depend on a bunch of stuff that we don't have access to just at the complaint level as to whether Valve could make the claim that all of video games is in fact the relevant market for a conversation like this one. But assuming they do have that power, then you can start to get into the allegations that they are abusing it. In order for game developers to sell on the Steam platform, Valve requires that game developers pay Valve a commission on all earnings on the Steam platform. That's that 30% we know, falling down to 25 for revenues between 10 million and 50 million and 20 on revenues over 50 million. Game developers overwhelmingly believe that the Steam platform does not justify a 30% commission fee on their earnings, but because of the Steam platform's market monopoly power and Valve's maintenance of that market monopoly power via the Steam MFN, game developers have no choice but to agree to pay these commissions. Now, this is an odd little section here because they aren't complaining about the 30%. They aren't complaining that the 30% is super competitive, other than the fact that it exists by virtue of this most favored nations clause. They aren't arguing that the 30% should be lowered uh, in the same way that Epic is talking about the app store fees with respect to Apple, that 30% is too high and that it needs to come down. They do, however, spend time saying that developers hate this 30%. And they also spend time in this lawsuit saying there are lower percentages available elsewhere, but game developers have no choice but to agree to pay these commissions it becomes the same kind of argument as Epic versus Apple, which is to say, 
Game developers have no choice if they wish to sell their game on Steam. And then the secondary question, does Steam have the right to set a price that is potentially higher than others? Generally speaking, in the competitive network, we're okay with people setting their own prices. And if you have a higher price, presumably there's some advantage that you give them, whether it's quality or otherwise. In this case, it's network effects. And as we've talked about in this space, the law and antitrust in general doesn't have great mechanisms for dealing with the modern network effect problem, which is that just by their very existence, the Steams of the world, the Facebooks of the world can kind of crowd out potential competitors, potentially ask for more money at various levels of whatever service they are providing by the nature of what they are and how many people enjoy their services. So when you get to a situation like this in paragraph 67, the question becomes, is this relevant to your most favored nation argument? I would argue that it isn't, but they want it out there. They want it in front of the court to once again suggest, as the court might have well seen in other lawsuits about various services like this one, that game developers are unhappy. They're being harmed by the 30% commission on fees. Now, then you get a very short paragraph, 68. Valve does not set the price to consumers. Game developers do. That's big. That's big, right? A most favored nation clause is saying you have to set the price the same over here that you might set it elsewhere, but we don't set it for you. We don't tell you what price your game is going to be. This is not a monopolist controlling what is the actual price going out to consumers. So that's going to create another kind of wedge in between your argument where Valve says, look, you set your own price and you can set your own price at platform X over there. All we ask is that if you do that, the platform price gets lowered here on Steam. And again, I'm saying that on the assumption that there is a most favored nation clause. I haven't actually seen evidence of that here or elsewhere. Valve also requires game developers to enter into a confidential contract with Valve whereby the game developers agree to an MFN that requires the game developer to offer its PC games on the Steam platform at the lowest price the PC game is offered for sale on any other third-party platform or on the game developer's own website. Now, in general, you don't lie to the court, right? You're a lawyer. You have been admitted to present this lawsuit to the court. There are certain ethics rules that say you don't lie directly. The question isn't that there isn't something that talks about something like pricing in this agreement. The question is, is it actually a most favored nations clause or does it do something lighter that they want to present as a most favored nations clause? And unfortunately, that's a question that has to get answered uh, and it has to get answered as part of this lawsuit. The court will probably let them find that out. Perhaps Valve will submit a copy of the contract or ask what section it might be referring to when they talk about these kinds of things. But right as it stands at this second, all we have is these assertions that say this is a most favored nation clause. This is how it works. And these are the negative impacts that it has. The Steam MFN prevents price competition. Indeed, it would. The Steam MFN disincentivizes game developers from dropping the price of PC games on other platforms to take advantage of lower commissions offered by competitors to the Steam platform. It does. It acts as a downward pressure. If this provision exists then it says, okay, if you want to sell to our big audience and you also want to sell on the Epic Game Store, it has to be at the same price. And so Epic Game Store can't get a foothold because they would otherwise like to see a slightly lower price on all their games because they're only charging a 12% commission and that can't happen. And so because that can't happen, that is a legitimate complaint in this paragraph. It's one of the reasons why I think that this is a kind of good lawsuit. It's well thought out in places and muddled in others. 
Despite the significantly lower commission structure of the Epic Game Store, PC games sold on EGS sell at the same price as they are sold for on the Steam platform as required by the anti-competitive Steam MFN. Again, one hurdle that they'll have is, would that be the case anyway? You've got instances where those games go out into stores and other types of retail establishments, and you don't have any difference in price without any most favored nation clause. In 2019, Discord shuttered its store. They had a 10% commission rate, Judge. Upon information and belief, because of the Steam MFN, Discord's low price strategy was unable to drive volume to the Discord store. Perhaps, but also perhaps because they didn't have a great output, they didn't have a great selection, they didn't have great investment in their plans, they didn't have a great platform in and of itself. I don't know the answer to this, but you have this statement that says it's because of this clause in this Steam contract that Discord store was shuttered. You have an obligation to really put the pieces together for a claim of that type in order to bring these arguments. Then you have a a table, right? Despite Epic Games only charging a 12% commission, Microsoft charging a 15% commission, all these prices are the same. The Outer Worlds, Far Cry, Borderlands 3, Call of Duty Infinite Warfare, Remnant, Sea of Thieves, Gears 5, Surviving Mars, Amnesia Rebirth, Oxygen Not Included. But one thing to note here is that these prices are all different, right? These are $60 games. These are $40 games. 30 goes down to $10 for an old copy of Halo 3. You actually have to establish that this, the Most Favored Nation Clause, is harming competitors in some way. That were it not to exist, these prices would be different. The fact that they are the same doesn't actually make your case. It might seem like it does, right? But it doesn't because we have all sorts of instances where you just match price that people are expecting this kind of price. You get this kind of price because it doesn't make a lot of sense to sell it for $55 over here because nobody's going to come over there just for the $55 and you're going to just get less money for those sales in any event. So the question about whether or not this all makes sense or not depends on what you believe the developers or publishers will do with this lower commission. And once people are used to paying $60, don't developers and publishers just take the extra 18% or the extra 15%. And that's one of the hurdles that you're going to have to come up against and cross if you're going to bring a successful lawsuit on these grounds. Game developers are not independently choosing to price PC games at the same level across platforms. They are required to do so because of their agreement to the Steam MFN. Without the Steam MFN, it would be in game developers' independent economic interest to offer their PC games at lower prices on platforms that charge a lower commission than the Steam platform because they could generate the same or even greater revenue per game as a result of the lower commissions. This is objection, facts, not in evidence right? Anybody that's looked at economics knows that, yes, when you lower prices, you will have an increase in demand. More will be sold. But the question of whether more will be sold to make up for the price difference is what all of these companies everywhere in the world are constantly analyzing and trying to figure out. What is the correct price point? Where is the revenue maximized? Yes, I can lower price and get more sales, but if I don't get more sales enough to cover that price difference, it doesn't make sense for me to lower the price. So all of this right here, it's in their economic interest to offer their games at a lower price because they'll make more money depends on the fact that more people will buy it sufficient to make up the difference. You can see this writ large if you assume that people would be most benefited by selling their games for a penny, right? Undoubtedly, you would sell the most copies at a penny. But if you sell all those copies at a penny, how many more would you need to sell 
to make up for the difference in those that you could have sold for $60 to whatever your core audience is. Obviously, you'll never make up the money at a penny. And there's some number in between that is going to make you the most revenue. But that number might be $60. And this completely kills that concept. In any event, we've got remaining charts and tables here establishing that, hey, if developers just lowered their price on something like Epic, they could still make more money and they could make it at just the same rate as Steam, but sell more copies of the video game. Of course, this lowers their price. Consumers get a better price, sure. Developers don't make any more. They have to go and deal with a more risky platform. I don't see that happening for any number of reasons that are outside of the existence or applicability of a most favored nation clause. In a competitive market unfettered by the Steam Most Favored Nation clause as platforms compete for game developers via lower commissions, the Steam platform would have to either lower its commissions or otherwise increase the value of its platform to consumers. The Steam MFN saves the Steam platform from competing on the merits with other platforms. And that doesn't make a lot of sense either, right? Sure, let's say the MFN exists and you can't charge less if you're going to be on Steam and Epic Game Store. Developers are still making more money on Epic Game Store. So you're combating that with your 75% uh, consumer base. But if things start to shift towards Epic Game Store, you have the same kind of downward pressure. The most favored nation clause isn't preventing it. It might be hindering it. That's why you get this language of unfettered. And I'm not trying to dismiss their argument entirely. But when you rely on, you know, two or three or five separate footnotes of Tim Sweeney's Twitter account, I do have problems with the evidentiary complaint that you've brought in your lawsuit. The Steam MFN suppresses output. It is a basic tenet of economics that lower prices lead to increased sales. Indeed it is. Accordingly, because of the Steam MFN's effect on prices, fewer PC games are sold than would be sold in a competitive market. And again, you don't have a most favored nations clause actually preventing discounts. You just have those same discounts applied over at Steam. Now you could argue, as they do here, that it's preventing the existence of competing platforms in their entirety, which would result in lower prices to developers and maybe more games, but maybe fewer games. It's hard to say, right? If if these platforms are making less money and they have less reason to invest in their resources and they have fewer reasons to go out and do whatever it is that they are doing and selling your video game for you, then maybe fewer games are sold. Maybe more games are sold, but it's not as easy as when prices fall, demand goes up. That's true in a vacuum, but there's so much more happening here. It's going to take a lot more to bring this action. Then we see the class action. As I said, it's class one is the people that are direct subscribers. Class two is the parents of subscribers. And they bring a complaint for violation of section two of the Sherman Antitrust Act, which is that monopolization. The combination of its market share and the Steam MFN allow Valve to price commissions to game developers in an anti-competitive manner. Matter. That's, that should be manner. <laughs> Small corrections in virtual legality. It's the norm here for lawsuits. An anti-competitive manner. And so you've got this notion that now the commission is up for a conceptual argument, right? You had that in the one sentence. I said they didn't bring any evidence against it for pages and pages and pages and pages. By the time you get to count one, paragraph 112, they want to say that the reason that they can charge 30% entirely is because of the most favored nations clause. And I think you've got a lot of strings to tie together to get to that level. The fact that Microsoft charges a 15% commission, Epic charges a 12% commission, and Discord charged a 10% commission show that Valve is a monopolist. What? Why? If they 
had 30% commission being charged and these places went under or they still exist, it doesn't actually make Valve doing anything wrongly. In other words, Valve's commissions and thus consumer prices are substantially above the competitive level, right? So they say the competitive level is what the upstarts want to charge, but they also use the entire document to say the upstarts want to charge lower prices in order to gain market share. That doesn't make Valve a monopolist. Valve is a monopolist, if at all, because of the market power that they have and not because other people want to charge less money. In a world without the Steam MFN platform, commissions may be even lower than the lower commissions charged by rival platforms in the actual world, as competitive forces would push platforms to price their commissions based on their costs and in reaction to how their competition is acting. The problem is, is that exists right now, right? Your, your paragraph right before this said, this company charges 15, this company charges 12. If Steam's most favored nation clause is such a problem, why are there other competitors that charge these lower percentages? And you say Discord went under because of the most favored nation clause. I don't know whether or not that is in fact the case, but you actually have to make that proof in a court of law in order to get to the level that you want to get, which is going to be, as we will see at the bottom of this, enjoining Steam's ability to have this clause, to get rid of the clause from their contract. Valve's conduct is designed to monopolize the market and maintain its monopoly in the market illegally, unreasonably. Every day the Steam MFN remains in effect, Valve will continue to violate Section 2 of the Sherman Act. So the ultimate claim here, right, your walkaway point, is that they say that Steam has a provision. The provision says if you charge someone else less for your game, you have to charge that same amount over here at Steam. And because of the fact that they are big, that amounts to an illegal use of monopolization power. Now, one question that might be interesting as a kind of counterpose here is, what do the other platforms have? Did they have most favored nation clauses? Because it would be normal for something like this. Did those contracts have those kinds of clauses in them? I don't know the answer to that, but that's the kind of thing that Valve would be looking at and certainly would be looking at across several industries because most favored nation clauses are not that unusual. Uh, they're pretty standard in a lot of things, including manufacturing. You saw health initiatives, which have been covered in court quite a lot, but that's the ultimate claim is that this is violative of the Antitrust Act and they make some good arguments. They depend on a lot of economic analysis, but this is the kind of thing that I don't necessarily think gets kicked out of court super fast, but they have a long way to go on the road that they're trying to claim. The by far worse count is violation of section one. The game developer defendants entered into contract with Valve, agreeing to the Steam MFN. The Steam MFN, as discussed herein, is anti-competitive. So you kind of have to win your count one, your count one under section two to get to your count two under section one. It has the effect of game developers charging consumers more than the game developers would in a competitive market. And Valve and the game developers, by entering into agreements that restrain trade and cause increased consumer prices, have violated section one of the Sherman Act. Every day the Steam MFN remains in effect. Valve and the game developers will continue to violate section one of the Sherman Act. Ubisoft is guilty of anti-competitive trade practices by agreeing to a concept that is illegal and by agreeing to that illegal concept that hurts itself, that's what makes it illegal, that it in and of itself was a cartel-organized restraint to trade. Yeah, yeah, no, get rid of count two, ditch count two. I, I can't give legal advice to people bringing these legal claims, but count two is a mess. Uh, and certainly I would not recommend bringing it against the developers in this concept. Maybe you've got a different concept that you can bring. Hey, maybe I'm wrong. And the court says, yeah, that all makes perfect sense to me. But this, in my opinion, is where you get a real weakness that is more than just the weakness of relying only on economic analysis up above. What they want, they would like 
damages. They'd like them trebled. They tripled for those of us out here in the real world uh, because that's what the Antitrust Act does. A declaration that the Steam MFN is anti-competitive, illegal monopolization and monopoly maintenance, and for you to enjoin the Steam MFN and, of course, pay the lawyers, right? You got, you got to go get the lawyer money. So that's what this case is all about. I do think that there are elements that are stronger uh, than the Epic case. I will be very interested to see what the language of this proposed provision actually is at some point because I'm not so sure about it, right? I'm not so sure that it exists. I'm not so sure that it exists in the exact concept or framework that they claim that it exists. Why am I not so sure? Because if we go and we look, and this is an article from Eurogamer that was pulling up things from like the Steamworks distribution page, there doesn't appear to be something that suggests that Steam controls prices. Here's their overview of pricing. Partners on Steam are responsible for setting and managing pricing for their products. Okay, good so far. The Steamworks developer site provides tools to configure pricing and discounts in all the currencies supported by Steam. Initial pricing, as well as proposed pricing adjustments, will be reviewed by Valve and are usually processed within one or two business days. We recommend pricing strategies based on our experience, and we may suggest prices based on currency conversions and other factors. During processing, we will attempt to check your prices for input errors, but we can't guarantee we will catch every one, so please check your prices carefully before submitting, right? And that all makes sense. Now, you'll do note that Valve says that they will review your pricing changes, and apparently that's where the rubber hits the road for some people. As this Eurogamer article says, does this amount to a most favored nation clause? Tim Sweeney seems to think so. In a February 2019 tweet, the Epic boss said that reviewed by Valve line shows developers don't have autonomy to set prices for games. And that might be what Tim Sweeney was talking about. We don't know. This is an article from Eurogamer more than a year after that tweet. But where things really get weird is when we talk about Steam keys, right? If you aren't familiar with Steam keys, Steam keys are free. Valve lets you make keys of your game and then sell them out into the marketplace. Steam keys are meant to be a convenient tool for game developers to sell their game on other stores and at retail. This is from the Steamworks documentation website. Steam keys are free and can be activated by customers on Steam to grant a license to a product on Steam. Valve provides the same free bandwidth and services to customers activating a Steam key that it provides to customers buying a license directly from Steam. We ask you to treat Steam customers no worse than customers buying Steam keys outside of Steam. While there is no fee to generate keys on Steam, we ask that partners use the service judiciously. And this became a whole thing about people potentially having 10,000 activations and only 100 bits of sales on Steam. And this might be something that ultimately winds up getting used against Valve in a case like this one. Here's an article from August of 2017 about Steam saying that they weren't going to honor as many keys as they were before. And the actual comment from a Valve person says, if we are denying keys for normal size batches, it's likely because your Steam sales don't reflect a need for as many keys as you're distributing. And you're probably asking for more keys because you're offering cheaper options off Steam and yet we are bearing the costs. So at some point we start deciding that the value you're bringing to Steam isn't worth the cost to us. For example, say you've sold a few thousand copies on Steam but have requested or activated 500,000 keys. Then we are going to take a deeper look at your games, your sales, your costs, etc. We're going to decide whether we want to be partner with you because we don't make money off the keys. Why does Valve do this? You can, you can get a hundred different answers for this question, but it seems like it's a part of advertising and it's part of that network effect. Hey, 
if we let you sell into retail with these Steam keys, even though we don't make money off that directly, people are now in the Steam ecosystem. We want people in the Steam ecosystem because that's how we get that 75%. With that 75%, maybe that's how we charge 30%, but that isn't something necessarily monopolistic or illegal. And so these Steam keys go out there at effectively a zero rate for Steam and for Valve. And primarily what they ask for is that you don't treat Steam people directly worse. And you get this one line. It's okay to run a discount on different stores at different times, as long as you plan to give a comparable offer to Steam customers within a reasonable amount of time. Which is close to a most favored nation concept, but note that it isn't. It actually says specifically you can run a discount on a different store for Steam keys that we make no money on, and you can run that discount without running a discount at the same time on Steam. That another platform that's using Steam keys can actually have a lower price for the game than we do here at Steam, as long as you get a discount of the same type to Steam customers within, quote-unquote, a reasonable amount of time. So it's a potential most favored nation kind of concept, but also note, this is about Steam itself. This is a functionality that Steam provides, that Steam will be maintaining and doing the updates and the back end and whatever else Steam does to get this game onto your computer. So actually having Steam keys that go out this way is even more... Uh, more or less controlling about prices than what is stipulated in this lawsuit. Steam is letting prices go all over the place with this Steam key notion. And if they have a most favored nation clause, it must look significantly different than this. And I don't know what it would look like that would actually work together with the Steam key concept in a way that makes sense. So at the end of the day, when we look at this lawsuit, I think as presented right now, with the exception of the Sherman One stuff, which I don't think makes sense. There is a palatable, reasonable case to be made that if Steam says you can't charge a lower price somewhere else without giving us that lower charge, that they could potentially be found by a sympathetic judge or even court of appeals to be violating the Sherman Antitrust Act Section 2 on monopolization because they're using their market power to try to prevent nascent competitors from competing on price. I think you can make that theory of the case. I think it needs to be stronger than it is right now. But most importantly, it needs to have the actual clause that you can show the judge what it does, how it operates. And that will be one of the crucial things that will either come out or make this whole thing die as part of this particular legal action. We will follow it, of course, like we do all of the lawsuits here in Virtual Legality. If you have your own thoughts, please leave them in a comment to this video. Obviously, this is important to a lot of folks. It's going to be important to a lot of folks moving forward to see whether this makes any kind of noise or whether Valve and the rest of the developers dispatch with it fairly quickly. This has been Virtual Legality for today. If you enjoyed this video, please consider supporting the channel. We have a Patreon now. We're accepting tips and donations at Streamlabs. This has actually become quite a lot of my time and resources here at the law firm in a very unexpected and very happy way. I'm very enthused about all the growth we've had and all the people that have come to me. I hat tips to a whole host of people that brought this lawsuit to my attention, asked for my thoughts, asked for my uh, analysis of what we were seeing. You can also think about buying stuff from the store. You can see the various shirts and things we have just below this video. But if you don't want to do any of that, that is totally okay. 2020, 2021 is a tough year for everybody. Just subscribe, tell your friends, ring bells. We are having conversations about business and law of pop culture, technology, software, and more almost every day uh, at this point in time. So if you like this content, check out the other content on the channel. And yeah, subscribe. You'll get a lot of videos from us. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. 
Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.